Welcome to episode five of Regulatory Ramblings. Our guest today is a dear friend and mentor of mine. Nigel Morris Cultural is a counter money laundering and financial crime risk and compliance strategist. A pioneer in the field of financial crime risk and compliance strategies. It's an area in which he's worked for close to three decades. Prior to that, he was a solicitor in private practice, having authored several books, financial crime and other topics. He's also a regular contributor to several media outlets. Nigel is also the chairman of the Financial Crime Forum and a developer of high-level online training programs. Often, often unconventional and uh, sometimes a little controversial, he aids businesses smooth out the bumps in their risk and compliance systems so as to increase efficiency and reduce costs and staff resistance to frequent change. And with that, Nigel, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Many, many, uh, many problems have been um, seem to trace back to deficiencies within the um, FATF's forty uh, recommendations. That um, the FATF, I mean, the Foreign Action Financial Action Task Force, the Paris-based body that sets norms in this area for our viewers, often gets a bad rap. Uh, I mean, I've heard former cops tell me they feel the 40 recommendations are insufficient. They don't go far enough. Uh, I don't think most countries comply with all 40 recommendations. I mean, what, 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 are, you, what are your thoughts on the 40 recommendations? That, that, were, they, were they a good idea at one time? Or are they passe now? I mean, they're... I, in, in 1999, I said the FATF had finished its job and it should be disbanded, and I'm still of that view. Um, now all it's doing is going round and round and round in circles, trying to say, well, this is important now, so let's deal with this. Um, and it's actually, from a, from a compliance point of view, a risk management point of view as well, a financial crime risk management, it is counterproductive because they are setting every few months a new agenda, which is upsetting the way that organizations can function. So what they, what they should do is just shut up, produce a completely new set of recommendations, which is comprehensive, and then walk away. But this constant drip of changing things, tweaking it, mostly because they come up with stuff and they don't think it through. Then a few months later, they say, oh, well, we should have done that. So they change it. Then a few months later, oh, well, there's another thing we should have tweaked. Just shut up, stop holding meetings, sit down, get some intelligent people to sit there and work through what the problems are, what you're trying to address, and what is the least friction that governments need to create to achieve that objective. And it's really nowhere near as complicated as they make it. Again, it's coming down to the question of politics more than the question of law and regulation. Countries don't like being held in a straitjacket. I mean, this is this is one of the fundamental reasons why the UK left the EU. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I was adamant that we'd made a big mistake going in. I didn't think it was at the time. Later, I realised how, how much of a mistake it was. Common law is incredibly flexible. Codified law, like Europe, and to a great extent, the US, although it doesn't want to say so, is not flexible. And that means that every time you want to change something, you have to change the law. Whereas with a common law system, if something isn't right, the courts fix it. And it's quick and it's cheap and it's easy and it's not political. 
But as soon as you have to change things in legislation, it becomes political. When you have the FATF and the EU imposing their rules on top of national law, get to the EU bypassing national law in a minute, when you've got the, um, the those, those supranational bodies saying, this is what we want states or countries to do, then of course there's going to be things where people are saying, but that's not how we do things. It's not how we want to do things. Even within countries, you get this. I mean, for example, in England, in the north, a spade, something you dig holes within your garden, has a handle like a letter D. In the south, it has a handle like a letter T. And you can't sell T-handle spades in the north of England. You can't sell D-handle spades in the south. People won't buy them. Now, when you've got a national body saying a spade should have a T-handle, it causes trouble. And that's what you've got in relation to the Financial Action Task Force, the EU and its directives. It's trying to impose a one size fits all when people have different opinions. So it's got a committee. If, uh, uh, what comes out of it is a committee that is trying to not upset anybody instead of one person sitting there saying, this is how we need to do it. This is what to do. And I don't care if you get upset. Because this is the objective and this is the this is the quickest, cheapest, easiest, the, the lowest friction way of getting to that objective. Their defenders would say, because they do issue more guidelines than, you know, I, I, I would have expected. Uh, their defenders would say they're trying to keep up with a changing world. A cynic like me would say they're, they're just trying to assert their own relevance. I don't think you're a cynic. I think you've got it right. Um, the the FATF and band bodies like it. I mean, we can include the the Wolfs the Wolfsburg group as well. Right. Um, the Wolfsburg group was created, in my view, as nothing more than a PR exercise to try to head off the criticism of private banking by the then um, House Committee under Senator Carl Levin. Levin was saying correspondent banking is a problem um, and uh, private banking is a problem. He made a mistake in that he took the definition of private banking from a, um, a manager at City in New York and their definition, their corporate de definition of private banking, which he relied on, is a million miles away from private banking as it is in the rest of the world. So he was flawed in that. But it was obvious what direction, in broad direction, he was going to go in. And to be fair, he'd been working on this for 15 to 20 years. This was not a surprise. And the Wolfsburg group came along and said, we've got a problem because we're all the big, all the big international banks with all the big international private banking um, departments. And if Levin goes against us all, we're going to be in trouble. So what it did was create a set of what it decided would be um, uh, principles for private banking. Do you know, I think every single one of those banks which still exists has been found to be in breach of the Wolfsburg principles on at least one and in many cases, multiple times. So they set these things up to say, look, we're really good. This is what we're doing and then didn't do it. How does an organization like that get credibility? Is it because it was 20 years ago and now the people who are saying, oh, yes, there's something new from the Wolfsburg are so young? that they don't know how it arose and what it did, or should we rehabilitate it? It's correspondent banking work, incidentally. Shallow, 
but very but insofar as it went was very good um and its later revisions have improved things dramatically so it's not all bad but it's not it doesn't justify the credit which is given to it it is a simple industry group of largely self-interested organizations it's interesting that you mentioned senator carl levin because I mean, it's there in the congressional record. Nine uh, in two thousand one, I think this was that 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 se the session of Congress ended June of two thousand one, and nine eleven happened in September that year. But um, he he's in the congressional record as saying AML rules need to be tightened before nine eleven. No one listened. You know, then then they got their section three twelve of the Patriot Act, and uh, you know started started tightening things up. But um, at that point, I well, thought the pendulum had swung too far the other direction. Well, no, Levin had crafted, Levin and his team, had crafted the, um, the, 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 uh, the money laundering, counter money laundering provisions, the administrative provisions around counter money laundering. He'd, 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 he and his team had drafted that, and those are the things that were supposed to engram Leach Bliley. And they got thrown out. When the USA Patriot Act appeared, they got slid back in almost unamended. And as we know, many in the US Congress have since admitted that they didn't even read the USA Patriot Act. They were told, if you don't sign this, you will be un-American. And so they signed it without reading it. 311, 312, it was, it was absolutely obvious that, they were, that what the purpose of those was going to be. Before that was in force, I told a group in London um, at a, a breakfast briefing um, run by Complinet, which um, you know subsequently ended up going and uh, being part of, uh, of Thomson Reuters. Um, and I explained exactly how Section 311 and Section 312 would work. And I was shouted down by people from large law firms and accountancy firms. If the banks had listened to me instead of them, they was, would have been saved hundreds, if not thousands of millions of dollars in fines. Um, and it was very, very clear which directions was taking because the, the, the basic provisions that are in 311 and 312 were actually described in a book in 1975 by Clark and Teague, who had worked in the New York, in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office under um, Robert, Mor Robert Morgenthau. And he had come up with this idea of saying that we have sovereignty over our currency, and wherever, it, whenever it's used in the um, anywhere in the world, if it goes through a bank, it clears through Manhattan. Therefore, I have jurisdiction over that transaction, and all ends and both ends of that transaction. So that extraterritorial reach that we saw in the USA Patriot Act was thirty odd years old in terms of concept. You just needed to know what you were talking about. It wasn't rocket science. And it was reasserted full force in, in uh, FATCA, because people forget it. FATCA was about U.S. dollar transactions wherever in the world they may take place. Yeah. Dealing in yeah. dollars, you're on the hook. That they, they'll, that they will, uh, they will assert extraterritorial jurisdiction. Well, the Manhattan DA's office, long after that, in the 1990s, um, a guy called John Mosco that you may or may not remember, um, was touring the world, telling bankers. Um, if you if you use money, if you use US dollars anywhere, we in my office will come after you. And he was using what he what was at that point 
the inherent jurisdiction. There wasn't, a, there wasn't legislation for it at that point. And he was saying, we can do this. I don't know that they ever did, but he was expressing what Morgenthau had been talking about in 1975. Morgenthau at that point was still in office. So there was, there's no surprises. There's very, very little that's new. Um, the problem we have as an industry is that there's far too many people who appear, go off and do two or three days course and then get a qualification, say, hey, look, I'm an expert. Um, and they don't understand the background and the history. And therefore, they think everything is new. I have not seen anything new for so long. It's boring. Everything's a variation on the theme then to you? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, we're getting all of this fuss about we need to regulate um, the, uh, the, the fintech sector. Yeah. Actually, what we need to do is say, if you take in money, you warehouse it and you pay it away, you're a bank. Therefore, you're going to be regulated like by a bank, not like a bank. We shouldn't be saying you're a fintech, therefore you get a different regulation. No, you're providing the, the, the essential function of banking. Therefore, you are a bank. Therefore, you should be regulated as a bank. And if you don't have the capital adequacy ratios, fine. Merge with another business or get out of the, or get out of the industry. Just like a bank would have to. Well, I've long, I've long said that, and this is my view when, you know, they started doing the first um, Bitcoin event in Hong Kong was held in 2014. My view on the regulatory panel that I sat on at that event was you can't be a part de facto or de jure a part of the financial system and, and play by your own rules. That didn't go down too well. But, but you know, now it's the point where it, this is a big money generator. I mean, it isn't just about getting a CAM certificate, it's about getting a CAMS crypto certificate. I mean, uh, again, going back to your point, how, does, how do the fundamentals of money laundering differ with crypto versus cash? I mean, again, it's, it's just the mechanism, it's the vehicle of transfer. <laughs> not to, put, not to, uh, to repeat myself too often, but it's just data. It, it isn't money, it's data. And it doesn't matter whether you're doing this with, um, with, with share certificates or with, um, a, um, or, or with money as, as we recognize it with fiat currency or whether we're doing it with a crypto or whether we're doing it with NFTs or whatever. We are transferring data and that data represents a value. And it doesn't, and, and it really, we should, not be com we should not be complicating it by trying to say, this is e-money, therefore it's different. It's all e-money except actual cash. And, you know, if I said to a criminal, no, wrong way around, if a criminal said to me, you can use my, um, use my beach house for a week, and I know or suspect that that has been paid for, at least in part, with proceeds of criminal conduct, I'm a money launderer, just because I use his house for a week. This is something that seems to be lost when there is when, when people are supposed to be learning about the subject they don't seem to understand that because it says money for money laundering they think it, it, it is predominantly to do with with a, me, a medium of exchange but the fact is anything can be a medium of exchange it doesn't matter whether you're using it for barter or whether you're using it as a, as a medium of exchange at the end of the day if it has value and two people recognize that value then a transaction using that asset however we define asset that is a that has the potential to be a laundering transaction and we can take this as i 
been explained to people for 25 years and generally they scratch their head. We can take this to the point where it is so completely ethereal that you can launder time. That tends to make people think he's gone off his head. But if you think about it, we have time banking. But if we have time banking, that means that your time has a value and therefore it can be laundered. Think I'd have a great deal of fun trying to get that prosecuted, but there's no reason why it can't be except trying to explain it to a jury. I mean, your point's well taken. Get back to first principles. What what what's the basic transaction about again? And then from there, you'll have a sense of what the underlying effect, what the basic uh, uh, underlying offence, what the basic crime at at, at play is. With the e-learning that we have. We have that, that some of these courses are eight, nine, ten hours long. So, for example, the one on corporate structures is three separate modules to create one course. And the reason for that is that we go back and look at how companies began. We're looking at how the money flows around those companies developed in the 1700s, 1800s. So we're looking at, at not just not necessarily crimes at that point, but the facilities that were created, the the constructs that were created that enable those crimes to take place 200, 300 years later. And by going back and looking at that, you can see there really isn't any significant difference between what is happening now and what happened then. For example, um, there's been an awful lot of fuss, although it's died down um, recently, about so-called SPACs, special purpose something companies. Yeah. Um, and they used to be known before somebody started calling them SPACs as envelope companies. And envelope companies were very common on over the, um, the, the over-the-counter markets, um, that, like the pink sheets. Well, pink sheets technically not over-the-counter, but that, that, that end of the market, a relatively um, lightly regulated end of the market. And, and they were called envelope companies because somebody would sit and jot out the idea for their company on the back of an envelope and form a company to do that. But this wasn't even this was far from the earliest example. If we go back to the um, the the um, uh, the beginnings of um, of, of the, the stock market in London, um, there was a company formed there which, uh, for which the, um, the the well, it was before there was a formal stock market. Um, this was when companies had to be formed by um, by Act of Parliament. You couldn't just go to companies' houses and say, I want a company. You actually had to get an Act of Parliament. And so these, the formation of these companies is very well documented. And one of them was to conduct a trade which we are not saying at a time we are not disclosing in a place that, we, uh, that we're keeping secret or words to that effect. How is that different from a SPAC? Functionally, it isn't. Exactly. So this idea, this was 1712, 1713 ish. Um, so, you know, we can look at that and say 300 years ago, we had exactly what these people are coming along saying is a great new idea. You just need to know. That's why I take the view that we should be teaching people depth of material that they would not otherwise be able to find for themselves without a great deal of research. And probably wouldn't bother. 
that we teach them this so they understand when something that that is being promoted as new comes along they can say i know about that and i know how it was dealt with will that solution still work most cases yeah it will well the relevant aspects of history were at one time taught in law school nowadays it's just a bunch of rules and, and you know policy prescriptions similarly in economics there, there are economics majors that nowadays uh, attain their degrees without any grounding in the history of economic thought because at one time e economics was taught along with po politics and philosophy yes. you know, they weren't separate I mean, degrees well that, that was that was a very oxford thing to do though wasn't it um yeah. And, um, and I, I have to say, whilst I don't have a great deal of time for Oxford, I think it's very snobby and I think it's far too American. Um, that particular approach, I think, was right. Um, I was taught at A-level economics with political overtones. Um, but having said that, it was taught with political overtones broadly from the left. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't taught with a balance. And as I look at economics today, I realise that the vast majority of what is promoted as economics is deeply, deeply, deeply flawed. And we see the same mistakes happening over and over and over again. Alan Greenspan blamed, at least in part, the global financial crisis on the fact that his economists only had data going back 19 years. Well, he was wrong. It wasn't only that. It was that the data that went back 19 years, which wasn't enough anyway, was only US data. If he'd had data that looked at the UK 22 or 23 years earlier, he would have seen exactly the same circumstances, literally identical circumstances as were causing the, as had caused the housing crisis in the States. And he'd been able to see that developing. But he, along with most other central bankers around the world, were busy lying, saying, no, no, it's fine. It's just a blip. It's all going to go. It's all going to come good any minute now. And it was never going to do that. And we knew that because it exactly had happened in the UK. And we'd had our own very severe domestic financial crisis um, when that happened. And you know, even, even the frauds over the type of mortgages that were being, being created were identical. Something, something that's worth uh, bearing in mind uh, moving forward. You know, on the issue of fintech, I mean, I, I, I agree that that they need to be regulated but the difference is that at one time whereas nation states regulators were skeptical now it's like they want to get in on the game themselves with the issue of you know central bank denominated currencies and and that, now you've got the regulators in dubai pandering to this sector by creating vara that's the acronym the world's first uh, ver uh crypto specific regulator uh, they're catering to them. They're pandering to them. I don't know. I mean that that might be that might be a bridge too far. I think you're I think you're confusing two separate issues here. You're confusing fintech in terms of its function as a pseudo bank or pseudo le or, or a lender or whatever um, on, on the one hand, and you're confusing that with crypto. And whilst Whilst those crypto, whilst crypto companies are offering those services, they are, and, and they should be regulated as if they were banks. So you've got that completely. I agree, but we have to understand that they are dealing in a in a in a market, which is 
not like fiat currencies because it is so volatile. And we have to rec we have to get people to understand, be it people outside the industry or people in the industry or regulators, to understand that there is no stability that can be guaranteed or even relative stability that can be guaranteed with crypto. We've seen the stable coins go into free fall and just end up in total chaos. Will that system mature? I don't know. Maybe. Um, it doesn't matter whether it does or not, because if it matures, then it's treat then then we see it as a bank as a banking function. If it doesn't mature, we see it as a high risk function. So it's got to be regulated as one or the other, or perhaps even both. I can see why why there's merit in having in, in regulating crypto as a combination investment and currency. And in that case, I can see a justification where there is that interlinking of two different subjects for having a for having a a regulator that has a bit of the power of of, of both. So it's not really separate, it's a combination. But if we're looking at, at governments issuing their own crypto, that's got nothing to do with fintech. It's a completely separate argument. And that has that has economic concerns. Um, but if we go back, do you remember when the Greeks were going to be thrown out of Europe because they um, because their currency was so bad? Well, not thrown out of Europe, thrown out of the out of the oh, yeah. um, out the glory days of 09, yes. Yeah, well, at that point, I wrote an article called um, Geeks for Greeks, which suggested that actually what all Greece needed to do was to issue a, um, a, a national cryptocurrency, which it would use to pay all its, all its expenses. And anyone who was dealing with the, with the government would pay using the crypto. That would leave the, the fiat currency available to be dealt with outside those dealings, and it would allow Greece to effectively freeze its ever ballooning state costs through its, um, its extraordinarily generous, some would say foolhardy, um, social, uh, social services system. So that was, that was when did you say it was, 2008-ish? No, yeah, later than that. Yeah. No, it was much later than that. But anyway, whatever it was, that was that was the idea I came up with. And it's interesting to see that we're now seeing um, going on since Venezuela. Again, similar circumstances is in a complete the, the local economy is in a complete shambles. But they but what they've done was create a, a currency which they did not use effectively, and so it hasn't been able to provide stability in its um in its international trading. If they'd done it and used it purely for government spending and allowed whatever the Venezuelan currency is to be used for non-government transactions, then they would have been, then, then the, the economy would have stabilized much more quickly. Um, they could have denominated all of, their, all of their oil if they weren't so busy giving to Cuba at below cost price. Um, and that would have helped stabilize their, um, their expenditure. So they could have, they could have said to, um, to non-Venezuelan um, companies, you pay us in crypto, which is exactly what we're seeing that the Russians have, have been arguing they should be doing. We can buy, bypass the bypass financial sanctions by not dealing in, in any fiat currency, is their argument. So I don't think that, uh, that that state crypto falls within the the same ambit as the crypto that you and 
Joe Public would buy. Um, I think it. I th I think that there is the capacity for it to be used judiciously to stabilize national economies very successfully. It's not how it's being used though. Although, no, having said that, to, to, to an extent it is. China's doing something a little similar to that now. I want to come back to the, the, your point about expertise, uh, that, um, that when you were giving a presentation all those years ago and you were shouted down, I mean, by, you know, people from top tier firms that, one almost gets the feeling then that many of these magic circle, white shoe, blue blood law firms in London and New York, that, that they're complicit, that they're, 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 they're compromised. I mean, people have said that about the big four as well, that... Um... I went to each of the big five accountancy firms and, um, and, the, and the top five law firms in London in 1994 and said, this is going to be a big area. I know, I know my stuff. No, sorry, I didn't go to Deloitte's because they did actually have someone who knew about it. Um, but other than Deloitte, I went to the, to the, the other side in the top five. Um, and every single one of them said, this is not an area that we see there's going to be any business in. Every single one. And so three, four years later, they're all running around saying we're the world experts in this. And mostly they've stuffed it up. But when it comes to expertise, one hat, you can't deny that the amount, there's so much credentialism and, and the, cert, you know, the certifications and diplomas that people are pursuing in this area. I mean, it's, it's such a huge cottage industry that, and people are using these credentials. This came up during my last interview with um, Ursula McCormick, a king of Malisons, that in, indeed you're seeing people use these certifications and these credentials as a proxy for labor. And in certain cases, you know, in a market where, you know, talented labor in this space is scarce, it may not get you the job, but it, it will, certain credentials will probably get you the interview. I know a number of people who are very good in the field that have taken a leading um, credential certification. It's not a qualification, despite what people say. Um, and they've done it because they can't get interviews without it. Sorry. And you think that's utterly stupid. Who are the, the people that are doing the interviews don't understand. I have, a, I have a, a question that I think lots of people should ask before they go and spend money on these things. How many of the banks that have their compliance departments stuffed with holders of one of two or three um, well-known certification schemes? How many of them have been fined? How many of them have been hauled over the coals for getting it all wrong? If you've got your entire top team holding that same piece of paper and you still get done, how valuable is that piece of paper? It's a valid, no, it's, it's, it's a valid point, but it, 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 it was not this case in 2001. At that point in Hong Kong, we had maybe less than 20 people that were members of CAMS, for example. And, uh, you know, it, it's just exploded since then. And that, that's true with, with uh, other uh, educational service providers in, in, in this field as well. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying training is a bad thing, but credentials should not be seen as a proxy for experience. But that, that's certainly in Asia, that, that's what I'm finding. Um, I'm finding 
two things. The first is those that have worked for a short period of time, maybe two years, in an offshore center for um, KYC or whatever, for one of the large banks, and these things are dotted around the world. They're, they're India and Poland seem to be particularly popular, but there's, they're in other centers too. They work for a couple of years and they collect those certificates, and then they promote themselves as being subject matter experts, which is a ridiculous expression in any case. Um, I mean, I've been in this field 25 years and I would not consider myself an expert, um, but I'd consider myself rather more knowledgeable than most. The, the, they, they then promote themselves as being experts. And the trouble is that because they've got the name of a, of a, of a bank, which was the outsource center, because they've got a title that appears to be quite good, and because they've got one of these pieces of paper or they've collected one of uh, some others from the same organization they are able to walk into jobs for which they are completely unsuited and i know a lot of people in their 50s and 60s who find it difficult to get work because the market is stuffed with hundreds if not thousands of these barely experienced people very limited experience and incredibly little knowledge and i find linkedin is interesting because there's a lot of people who admit to having these bits of paper in their title below their name many of them ask the most stupid questions mind-bogglingly dumb you wonder how they work out which foot to put their shoes on in the morning they are so stupid but they are walking around in in some cases, VP jobs in quite in quite large organizations. And you think if you understand so little about your subject, how did you rise above office junior? And the answer is, I got this piece of paper because I can learn and I can regurgitate. I don't need to understand. I just have to be able to say to repeat what I've learned. But they can't apply it in practice. I, I specifically do not. I have avoided mentioning any um, of the organizations concerned um, for the simple reason that there are people who do get a lot out of them yeah. um, and those and, and those people do work hard and there are some very good people who have those pieces of paper so i don't want to i don't want to tar the good people who happen to have the piece of paper with the same brush as the complete idiots who happen to have the same piece of paper the point is that piece of paper doesn't guarantee what you're getting you might be getting one of the good ones or you might be getting someone who literally hasn't got a clue but who knows how to pass exams precisely that the in, in a mark sadly in a market where there isn't that much information about the quality of the candidate the imprimatur on that certificate people take that as some indicia some indication of of how competent they are i mean it, it's untrue but you're right but it's worse than that because we're now, now that CVs are submitted electronically and are run through a, a, a piece of software which looks for specific keywords. Correct. For example, I don't have a degree because when I became a solicitor, I didn't need a degree. One of the questions on almost every form is, do you have a degree? No, I don't have a degree. I'm old. The systems throw me out because I don't have a degree. That's how Similarly, 
Yeah, but similarly, the systems are throwing out people who do the, the recruiters, however we define that, in house, out house, whatever. Um, <laughs> yes, I did say out house on purpose. <laughs> they, they, those people are. Um, uh, they are putting this the, the, the requirement for a, a particular piece of paper. So even if you've got something every bit as good but different, you're still being thrown out by their automated systems because it's not the correct trigger word isn't there. And so the quality of the staff which is which are being interviewed is not the quality of the staff which is submitting its applications. And I mean it's it's very 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 widespread. I use myself as an example because I'm unusual in that I have a in that I'm it's unusual that I'm a solicitor and I don't have a degree. Um, I think I was the last solicitor to qualify without a degree um, because the rules were actually in place and I had to reset a paper. So I I, I was six months behind, um, which is why I think I was the last one to qualify without a degree. Um, and ironically, the paper I had to reset was criminal law. <laughs> just bizarre. I mean, I was, I was doing a whole load of criminal work and and, and somehow I, I, I stuffed up the criminal law paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was that, was that for the Law Society of England and Wales? Yes. So, Bill Miker, who is our inaugural guest, uh, former Canadian police inspector and um, covert operative, often says, and I believe you, you met him too, there are too many, there are too many AML experts, but not enough money laundering experts. That The two should not be seen as mirror halves of each other. One does not necessarily give you an insight into the other. Even though money launderers, are, it seems, are ever so adept on what the rules are. Indeed, Many professional bodies in, in modern times have been criticized because it, it, it is said that launderers, people of dubious intent, do go to these gatherings, they go to these conferences, these seminars, and that such organizations have done more to educate criminals than, than, than anything else. And hence you see evolving typologies. Part of that's the genius of the criminals. Um, Part of that's also changing market circumstances. What do you think about that? That there are too many anti-money laundering experts that know, don't know a jot about money laundering, and oftentimes they're just repackaging other people's expertise and present, as you were saying, people with credentials, you know, presenting themselves as uh, subject matter experts. I think you raised about half a dozen different points in that. The first one is that um, I was once criticized by the head of the FIU, which is part of the central bank in, um, in, a, in a, a nation country, um, because bankers had said I was teaching them to launder money. Um, and I was called into her office and, and, and asked to explain myself. And I said, if they don't know how money launderers operate, how are they going to stop it? But this was not the first time I heard of this. Um, Someone who used to be a friend, who's now unfortunately dead, um, working for a bank in the USA, had gone to um, a large conference in um, in New York, and the front row was lined up with with, with archetypal mafia people with their, their their 
big shoulders and their, <laughs> their, their black suits and just standing there, sta uh, sitting there, staring at him all the way through his presentation. <laughs> he said he was terrified <laughs> because these, these people were the target of, of what he was going to be talking about. I think it's absolutely right that there, there are two completely separate approaches um, in relation to counter money laundering and um, what happens as a result of it. I am a risk and compliance strategist. I have zero skill whatsoever in investigations. And I think that those people who think they can do both are doing themselves a disservice because, I mean, yes, of course, we need to roughly be able to understand what happens so we can talk to people about it. But in terms of actually settling down and the nitty gritty of, of chasing the money, I used to do that a bit in private practice, in civil cases, but it's not the same in a criminal money laundering case, partly because you've got much better tools. And um, those that are looking um, for criminal money have a lot of, of, of benefits that in the private sector I didn't have. So there's that. But then there's also the fact that within the organization, we need to look at how the money moves around within the organization. That marks the end of our chat with Nigel Morris-Cottrell. Stay tuned for the next episode.